In today's episode of the Refi Podcast, John and I have the great joy of speaking to Rebecca Macamello from Zerion. She opens up about her research into community currencies, how crypto can enable local economies of trust to build in a specific geographic context. We talk about diversity and inclusion in DAOs and beyond. We talk about climate change, indigenous land people, and the gift, the economy of reciprocation that seems to be emerging in Web3 as a really core tenant, a cultural value that has great prospect in its age of transition. I hope you'll enjoy this episode and stay tuned for next week where we speak to another amazing guest. We're having so much fun in this journey, learning more than we ever thought possible about the regenerative finance movement that we're affectionately calling ReFi. Rebecca, hello. Um, hey. Welcome. We are so excited to have you here and um i i've been really looking forward to this conversation it's it's a very important conversation it's important because john and i are using this opportunity to sit down and have recorded conversations with luminaries in the refi movement to try to make sense of what we're getting ourselves into basically um we're exploring this new domain and uh, the way I kind of think about it is we're we're forming our worldview, right? Like this is the sort of lens through which we make sense of the world. And I think of it as the worldview, individuals have worldview. And when the collective kind of gathers together a worldview, it becomes a paradigm. And the way in which we construct our worldview is incredibly important. And that's why we're trying to be very thoughtful about the guests we're bringing on and like curating our approach to making sense of what regenerative finance is and how we can make this shift to regeneration. So that's just, I think, to express our gratitude that you're here and that you're here now. Um, We have a lot of ground to cover here. We're gonna get into all the refi stuff. We'll talk about complementary currencies and the growth curse and gift economy, et cetera, et cetera. But first off, we obviously want to start with what's important, which is you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your worldview and, and where you are and where you came from? Oh, big questions. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm also really, really happy to be here. I know we've wanted to have this conversation for a really long time. I'm so glad we finally made it happen. Um, mm. I'd be very happy to share a little bit about where I'm from. I think it you'll probably find out through the conversations it does have a really big influence on my worldview and specifically my worldview and how I think about money and crypto, which is an industry that I'm really Mm. familiar with. So I grew up in South Africa, and that's actually where I'm taking this call right now. So this is home for me. Uh, I grew up in a really small town, middle of nowhere, like not even most South Africans don't even know where I'm from. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was the first 13 years of my life. And then I went to boarding school, super traditional girls school, uh, and then studied in the US at a college that was totally unconventional and kind of on the other side of the educational spectrum where we would travel the world and visit, not visit, but live in a different country every semester. And they had this you know, crazy pedagogy where it was like experiential learning and we didn't write exams. And there were just so many different aspects of it that were cutting edge. Um, 
risky, one might say, but I think that experience coupled with his experience of coming from a very, very small place in the middle of nowhere um, and also being biracial in a country that is just has a really, really unique history. You know, all of these things kind of snowball into what shapes the way that you respond to the opportunities that are given to you. And I'll be the first to say that I've had many opportunities given to me from travel, from being exposed to crypto relatively early on. So I started getting involved in crypto from my freshman year. This was around 2017, so not that long ago. But, mm. you know, this was a time where it kind of just made sense. It was it was like I didn't have things, I didn't have risk to think about it and care about whether, you know, what this meant for the macro economy. It was like, oh, cool, there's a hackathon with free food. <laughs> I'll be there, <laughs> you know, and that's that's how it happened. Um but yeah, I think, you know, just to, to go back to your broader question of worldview, I think just a couple of things that I really care about, and these are like some of them to- totally unrelated. I really care about understanding where one comes from. Um, and I think this is very much tied to my identity, right? The fact that I am South African, the fact that my father's closer, my mother is white, South African. Um, that's that's an upbringing where you you grow up being between different worlds. And so for me, I will say to people that merging worlds is something that I've always done. And it's interesting because it's I see how that kind of comes into everything else that I do and, and how I'm I'm quite comfortable with what can sometimes feel like paradox, because I think that's something that I've grown up with from a really young age, whether it was my parents' cultural backgrounds or spiritual backgrounds or different family influences, um, you know, my, my education going from a super traditional one to a super unconventional one. Um, and so that's a thread that definitely runs through. And so I think, you know, it's something that I view as very valuable. And, um, you know, I'm also tied to that. I'm also really, really passionate about my, my continent and where I come from and what it means to be African, what it means to be global and African, um, and all the and, and, ands that you can add on to that. Because uh, I think something that I always uh, resonate with other people who might be in a similar position, who either are in the diaspora or grew up on the continent, is that one carries a sense of duty. Um, it, it's stronger for some than others, but it's it's always there. And there's always the sense of, okay, what, what do I do now with what I have, you know? So that's something that I think about a lot. And then I think just right now, because I'm working in crypto and I'm so exposed to sort of the financialization of everything, another thing that I really do care about is the way that we tie value to money, the way that we create a sense of meaning, um, and also the way that that can be shaped and manipulated as well. And I think that's something that we see happening around us right now. So I'm very excited to dig into that as a topic today. Hmm. Hmm. I, yes, I knew this would be a great conversation. I think the, the, it strikes me that you say, there are a couple of things that struck, well, everything you say strikes me, but um, there's a couple of things, this idea of paradox, I think, over the past years, and especially recently, I know John Nelson has done some work to study um, kind of the evolution of consciousness. This is a, the basis of a really interesting book, Reinventing Organizations, that I've been working my way through, I think John's familiar with. And in the sort of learning about the way the consciousness of human beings evolves, there's like quite clear patterns of progression. And 
one of my takeaways is that kind of encountering and understanding paradox is a catalyst for shifting into another worldview, right? Like you encounter something that doesn't fit in the worldview that you have. And that means you have to break that and supersede it or transcend it and kind of make a worldview that fits in everything. And I think, I, I guess that that's one, um, one thing I think that we're undergoing now collectively as a society is this transition to a new paradigm and it means that we're kind of reckoning with a lot of things that don't make sense in our world. Um, so I love that. I love that. Um, I, I, I guess, yeah, there's so much to talk about. John, anything spring to mind that you want to kind of tease out from that beautiful intro Rebecca shared? Yeah. Yeah. I guess just, um, I don't know, trying to understand the role that you think, like you said, the idea of around designing money and the implications that that has. Like, what are the choices that we're making now that concern you about the future that we have for the generations to come? Oh, man, so many. <laughs> and I say that and I say that uh, I say that amiably because I was thinking about this this morning Um I mean, maybe, you know, just for your listeners, I'm sure that you you two are familiar with everything that's been happening in the DeFi space, um, the whole ENS saga that's going on. I mean, there, there's a lot going on mm. right now. It's not just the price stuff that the media mm -hmm. tends to focus on. I'm like, oh, crypto is volatile. It's like, no, there's actually a lot that's going on here. Uh, and we, I think the first thing is just being aware that we really are building the infrastructure that people will be using on a mass scale. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I'm biased in saying that, uh, but, you know, if you just look at the, tra the trajectory of technology and adoption and, and Web3 and where it's going, I think if we if we begin with that as a premise, then there is a lot of responsibility attached to that. And I mean, one of the things that I, I think I only really made this shift, I'd say, in the last year was ex accepting, not really accepting, but thinking about, like, what does a world look like? where everything is tokenized. And I don't mean tokenized in the sense of like, you know, everything's going to have a, a price and, and you know, like everything's going to be super financialized. I think that's sort of like the slippery slope that many people get to. Of course, it's a possibility. But I just mean tokenized in the sense that we have now the quantifiable means to 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 assign a relational value to absolutely everything, right? Whether mm -hmm. right now we, we talk about tokens and NFTs uh, and maybe even digital identities, which is not so far off in the future. Um, but I think that when you have a world of this like quantifiable relationships between everything, it really does raise the question of, uh, well, how do we value what we value? And I think the issue that so many people have right now, and honestly, including myself, is that it seems that a lot of the value is sometimes not based on fundamentals, right? It's like the mm. price goes up because the price goes up because people want the price to go up. And that's a very, and, and price alone is a very shallow lens through which to see things. And I think like that is in, in itself also a, a bit of a concern, right? Of, how our sense of value is also influenced by this constant signals, constant noise that we're exposed to. So it's like a two-way relationship, right? Like uh, we are able to 
really emphasize the values that we have through tokenizing specific things. An example would be something like carbon credits, right? Carbon credits within crypto and Web3 right now is a really interesting, rapidly evolving topic. It's going to, I'm very curious how that's going to unfold. I'm not directly mm. involved in it myself. At the same time, we also know that our sense of value in terms of, say, our time and our identity is going to be influenced by the fact that we can now monetize these things in a way that we were never able to do before. Um, and I think that this then this also opens up a really interesting convergence between money, value, time, identity, language, right? I think that at a certain point, it can become difficult to distinguish one from the other. And this is where the interfaces that we use and, and sort of the, the gatekeepers to that experience are so, so important. Um, and I mean, mm. I, I work for one right now with, at Zerion, you know, we're a DeFi aggregator, but that's just one example, right? We're, we're, we're very focused on sort of like the retail financial market, but I think of, you know, Twitter potentially being one of those players in the future. Um, and so this isn't a specific concern, but it is increasingly on my mind um, in terms of like, are we thinking long-term enough about this? Are we learning enough from history? And I'll be the first to say, I, I'm not sure if we are. <laughs> no, and it, it's, there's such a tension, right? Because like, I I 100% hear you on this need to take a very deeply considered approach and, you know, understand the responsibility we are taking as being the designers and builders of this financial infrastructure that's going to underpin human society. I mean, I, I think I, in one form or another, these technologies will really inform the way money works in the future, whether that's central bank, digital currencies, whether that's public blockchains, but like, you know, digital money is not going away. And so you, on one hand, you've got this need to like move slow and do it properly, but there are lots of people out there that don't really mind and they are driving ahead and capturing market share. And so that's like in this very rapidly evolving dynamic market, at least personally, even in the last weeks and months, I've found that there's a real tension of if you want to deeply consider something it might mean you don't ever do it in the first place and then you don't have a leg to stand on anyway to try to make a positive change so it, it's <laughs> it's 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 a complex um kind of interplay and balance um i think it's probably worth pulling up for one second just to talk a little bit about what you mean by DeFi aggregator and i I think this is a very important part about the way that Web3 is architected, right? In a Web3 and decentralized applications, the front-end interface, the website essentially that you load on your laptop or phone, that you use to look at the databases where your personal data is stored, that's decoupled from the database. So when you're on Facebook, you load the Facebook web page and it looks at the Facebook servers and loads the Facebook data. With Zarian, the data that it's loading is stored on a blockchain. And the blockchain, you control your own entries on the blockchain. What Zarian has done is built this really, I, I use Zarian actually, I, it's a Zerion, sorry. Um, it's a beautiful interface for kind of looking at all your assets. And it's a really powerful thing because it means that I as a user have a choice to port my identity over to another service and sign up on a interface like DeBank or something else and not have to worry about migrating all my data and my assets to another platform provider, right? Can you tell me 
and talk to us a little bit about the value of this and the importance of it. And, and I think maybe color in and frame a bit more what I've been missing in, in that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think I'll also just give you a little bit of background context because, I mean, I joined, I joined the team about two years ago. So this is beginning of 2020. Um, and we must have had about, I want to say 3,000 monthly active users. And we were really proud of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, DeFi was like totally new. The concept of decentralized finance, the, mm-hmm. the concept of really owning your wallet and owning the data that is associated with that. Um, mm-hmm. And Zirin actually started off as just like a, a ba- super basic portfolio tracker. It came out of the ICO days. You'd have people getting all these altcoin drops and ICOs and saying, okay, <laughs> hang on, this is cool. Uh, but I can't actually track anything, right? Yeah. It's, it's all over yeah. the show. MetaMask isn't yeah. tracking half the stuff. I, yeah. it, it would be like opening your bank account and half your assets just aren't there. Right? And you so forget. Like from a user you perspective, forget where they are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and you forget. It's <laughs> yeah, people actually do forget. So Zirin came out with this you know, very basic portfolio tracker. They were just uh, tracking basic tokens, ERC-20s. And started adding on to that layer by layer over the years and over the months. And so they went from that to they were, Zirin was the first uh, decent, I mean, De- DeFi aggregator to integrate Uniswap. So you could then trade directly on Zirin. So mm. you started adding in all this functionality. Then we added Compound. Uh, so you could start saving and doing the loans. Mm. Um, and gradually, we just added on more and more exchanges. And now what the interface actually is, is basically like a portal to all of decentralized finance. So whether you want to index the market, I mean, you can find any ERC-20 on Zerion. Uh, whether you want to track your NFTs, you can do that on Zerion. You can stake on Zerion. You can find liquidity pools. You can find really complex DeFi strategies. You can see your entire portfolio. You can also see your portfolio across multiple chains. So now we're not just the Ethereum blockchain, we're also covering Polygon, Optimism, uh, Arbitrum, Gnosis chain, and you can trade on those chains. So mm-hmm. it's like, whereas before you would have maybe 10 different tabs open just to do one thing. Now right. you have one front end interface that's also really pretty, but you can do this yeah. and you can do it on your phone, <laughs> which is also right. really cool. Like DeFi yeah. right now is not a mobile experience. Um, and I think that's mm. actually something we're going to be seeing a lot more of. But mm. yeah, in terms of the value prop to your average user, it's like whether you are a complete first time investor or you are a degen and you've been doing this for five years, it's the kind of product that just gives you clarity. And I think that's mm. something that we really underestimate in this space is just clarity of what do I own? What is available to me? How am I performing over time? Uh, and then mm. the last aspect of this, which I forgot to mention, is also just clarity across different wallets. So a lot mm. of providers, you know, we talked about tying you into data. Something we don't talk about very often in DeFi is how UX can tie you into using a specific wallet or a single wallet or a single wallet provider. With Xerian, mm. you can attach your ledger, your Coinbase, your MetaMask and still get that beautiful overview of everything. Um, and mm. so that's that's what we do in a nutshell. Um, but uh, really interestingly, what we're starting to see now is that this concept of DeFi indexing is evolving from just tokens. You know, we went from tokens, we went to NFTs, um, and we're at this very early stage of even indexing wallets, right? So a lot of people will use Zerion for wallet tracking, where you can put in anyone's wallet and you can see mm-hmm. what they trade. You can download our mobile app and get a push notification when they sign transactions mm-hmm. in real time. So that's another really interesting use case mm-hmm. on like 
we're going to start seeing the social layers coming in. Um, and so, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a really exciting space to be working in right now. Totally. And I appreciated it as a new user to the world of decentralized finance. It was like, okay, I get it. Now it makes sense. Like I can put my wallet here. I understand what's happening. I'm not terrified anymore. Like I can move forward. So mm. grateful for the product y'all have made. And I think really the, the service is about accessibility. It's about making something that's very powerful, but hard to do, easier to do so that it can be available to more people. And I personally was really keen and excited to see Cello's whole DeFi for the people initiative saying, hey, you know, we're building this mobile first blockchain for the developing world who don't have access to banking services and actually, you know, diving deeper into this whole work of Cello and looking at Charles Eisenstein and sacred economics and this movement to redesign money for a different purpose really towards beauty and towards community and relationship and you know creating a system of value that actually regenerates the earth and i know that you've done some work around community currencies work in kenya and i'd just love to hear like what you've learned in this process and maybe give us an example of some projects you've been working on and the insights you gained and then we can kind of take it from there because i feel like that's a really unique thread that you have deep experience in yeah, so I, I started getting into the topic of community currencies back in 2019. Um, and I feel like this also needs a very short backstory, so I'm going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. um, I My first formal job in crypto was working for a centralized crypto exchange in Japan. Um, they're one of the biggest in Southeast Asia, and I was doing business development with them. Um, and this was around 2018 when ICOs were just at their peak. It was also a time when no one was really sure like what you do with crypto, right? It's like the company had raised a ton of money. They'd done one of, one of the highest um, performing ICOs and they really did make a lot. Um, and there was also just like a lot of this, the buzzwords of democratizing finance and banking the unbanked and blah, blah, blah. All of that was going around. And it became very, very disillusioning to be in that environment of, we say we're doing this, but this is what's happening. And these are the people that we're serving. And there is just a complete mismatch here. Um, so that was kind of a running theme for me. And I think many people in the crypto space during that time. And it was around that time that I found out about grassroots economics. Someone shared a random article with me online. They're like, oh, you should check out this organization in Kenya. They're doing... They're, they're doing crypto, it's on the blockchain, but they're doing it in rural areas and like people don't even have internet. And I was like, wait, hang on, <laughs> that makes no sense. How is that possible? And yeah, it turned out that they, they had this program that they had actually been running since about 2010. They had taken this concept of a community currency, which is you go into a community, you enable people to create their own money. It could be a voucher, it could be a digital token, um, and you restrict that trade to the, the geographical community in this case. So they had been doing this for a really long time. They'd already onboarded rural and urban communities. And in 2018, that was the year when they said, look, we have this technology. Let's try putting this thing on a blockchain. Let's see if there's any advantage to actually making this a crypto token that people are trading. They didn't have a fancy app for it. The user experience was very similar to what you would see with M-Pesa in Kenya, right? So mobile money is already something that's very prevalent in that country. So in terms of the day-to-day, the, -day, the, the look and feel of trading on this community currency network, you would just open your phone. You'd have the person's number who's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was your hairdresser, right? And you'd say, 
I want to pay you in this community currency that give you their number and you'd get a little USSD code, you put in the amount and that was done. That's the transaction. And that's a transaction that was on a blockchain. Um, and so for me, it, it sounds so simple, but it was like mind blowing how simple it was. <laughs> it was mind blowing that they mm-hmm. already had thousands of people using this in rural and urban areas and that they had the buy-in. I think that for me was the biggest thing is like the buy-in from the people using it. Um, and John, you asked me, what is the biggest takeaway that I've had from that experience? And, you know, I'll, I'll get into the details of it later, but I actually want to start with this in all the research that I've done with, with grassroots economics since 2019 and all the field work that I've done. I've, I've, you know, lived in the villages with the people using the stuff. The biggest thing for me is realizing that whatever kind of token you're building, whatever kind of economic system you're building, there needs to be an on-the-ground element. There really does. Mm. You There needs to be mm. some kind of face-to-face, human mm. trust-building, relationship-building. Um, mm. Look, I understand that it's obviously going to be different depending on the market that you're operating in and what people are used to. But at least specific to this case, you know, they obviously had they had development aims, right? They're not just doing this for fun. They were doing this because there is an issue with low income stagnant economies. It's right. People people get their income through remittances, part time work, et cetera, et cetera. But that money leaves the community pr- pretty much as soon as it comes in. And it's the concept of a leaky bucket economy where you get your money and then you spend it in a town that's 50 kilometers away because there aren't any local shops nearby, right? They, they're not providing what you need. They don't have the goods and services you're looking for. Uh, if you want to get your car repaired, it's like, oh, there's no car mechanic in this little village, so i got to go somewhere else, right? And this sort of perpetuates the this, this cycle of just value leaking out. There's no incentive to invest locally. Um, and that's what they're really trying to target. So in this case, it was just really incredible to see the amount of work that they would do into getting people onboarded into the community currency. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there. But there's, I mean, there's so many different angles that we could go into with this topic. Well, I, I think it's just an interesting thing to unpick there, which is like, what happens if there isn't an on the ground component with real people in a real local context? Like you said, that was a key thing, but like, what's the inverse, you know? Well, I, you know, I, I work with projects and I consult with projects and I have friends um, doing this stuff all over the world. And I have seen examples of this and I'm obviously not going to name projects, but it's, it's quite surprising to me that, you know, let's start with this. Given the technology that we have, a lot of people who are interested in rebuilding economies, interested in exploring regenerative economics, are using crypto as the tool to do that, right? And it makes sense. There are advantages to it. Of course, there's some disadvantages depending on the chain you're on and transaction fees and blah, blah, blah. But if you figure that out, a lot of people who are getting into the space now are coming into it from the perspective of the tech world. Now, Given the history of community currencies, the stuff isn't new. People have been doing this for decades. I mean, you could argue since the dawn of money because that's essentially what it is. It's just a tender. It might not be legal, but people have agreed to it. Mm. And so you have the tech crowd coming in and you also have the NGO crowd that's kind of been doing this stuff for a really long time in a very inefficient way, to be quite honest. Um, And what I've seen from people who are coming into this with the perspective of we're going to build this like product that's just built for mass adoption and it's on a blockchain and we're going to airdrop this to everyone is that they don't spend enough time thinking about that 
on the ground human to human work that needs to be done. There are examples of projects where sort of the, the go to economy strategy, if you could call it that, is just to airdrop tokens to people, right? It's literally to go up to people and say, hey, we're going to give you free money and we're just going to leave you and we're going to see what happens, right? Uh, an economy is a very complex network made up of different individuals. And it could be an economy of just 200 people in a village. It could be an entire city. It could be an entire country. But the point is, people need to feel that there is some value to spending that money. At the very least, when I go and try and spend this money at the shop down the road, I should have some confidence that that shop is going to accept it, right? If you haven't done the basic mm. work of making the shop want to accept the money, that's going to be mm. a problem because you can tell me that you just gave me a hundred dollars of this really cool coin. But if I can't use that hundred dollars, it's not really helpful for me. And so mm. this is where, you know, we, we call it supply chain braiding. You're braiding the supply chain. You're making sure that like, there's maximum surface area where this money can be spent. And, and there are different kinds of strategies that you can use for that, right? You could do things like early discounts. You could even be, you could identify a local hub, like it could be a really big retailer in the community. And you could say to them, hey, mm. we'll subsidize some of your costs if in the beginning you allow discount, discounts on payments in this token, right? So that's just to develop the initial sense of trust between the community and this currency. Or you could be making direct payments that are actually uh, investing in the local productive capacity of the community. So something mm. that grassroots economics does a lot is they will sponsor a, a uh, capital, like actual, you know, infrastructure of some kind. If it's a farmer's co-op, they might sponsor, say, a, a fridge, right? Keep your, your goods fresh for longer. And that kind of thing then enables these businesses to be more productive. And mm. on top of that, if they're agreeing to accept the community currency, it's like there's more output. People are accepting the currency because they trust that that business is going to take it. And that's sort of what kickstarts the cycle of trade. Mm. Um, but to your question, John, like, yes, absolutely. There is an inverse and we have seen it. And I actually think that airdrops are a perfect example of this at a macro scale. It might not be a specific geographic community, but there are so many people sitting with tokens in their wallet thinking, what on earth am I supposed to do with this, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really, really important that you think about that. And the, I think the thing that's coming up for me um, is just like the relationship building process, right? Because I guess through the industrial global economy, we've kind of taken all of these relationships that people have had with each other in local communities and that people have had with the earth and we've kind of commoditized them and sold it back to people. And now by circulating community currencies, we can really begin to aspire to give some of that back because we're tying that value back into the community and encouraging an exchange of value and a communication that stays within a geographic boundary. And if anything was clear to me off the pandemic is just how important local relationships with your neighbors and people around you are. And through a two-year period, many of us, didn't have much human interaction and actually we as a species are not well when we don't interact and so I'm really so excited that you've been able to deepen you know look into this space of community currencies and super curious how this can enable regenerative economies um, in a local context that look very different from a regenerative economy in a completely different geographic. So I haven't gone too deep on the literature and I intend to, but it's so exciting to hear some of these ideas. I've been thinking about them for quite a while, honestly, a lot through my lens of my work with Astral. Um, the idea, part of what we're trying to do with Astral is create 
um, tooling where you can actually bound transactions to geographic areas rather than some more hackish ways that we're doing it where like you whitelist a set of accounts instead it would be like I actually crossed this line and I can't spend this or the value of my currency decays the further away I get from this hub um, but I think one thing I've been thinking about is this idea of what local means and how there's also a sort of identity-based localism right like there's physical localism people that are near me but then there's like I feel very at home in the kernel community and those people are very close to me but I haven't I never met you I've never been within a thousand miles of you that's probably not true actually we've probably gotten closer than that but um so this is another exciting dimension of this to me is now that we can kind of create the money that we use we can um I, I guess I kind of think of it as like as we're talking about this idea of a, a diverse ecology of different types of currency rather than this sort of monocrop that we have now, um, it allows different communities to hold money that's reflective of what they value. Um, and I, I think there's one other point that I want to bring up to this, on this before we move on, because I think we'll be touching on this a lot over the next, um, over the series. Um, but we've talked a bit about how money is a form of language. And I, I really do think money is an information technology and cryptocurrencies prove that. And essentially what that means is it's a way we communicate with each other, right? It's a way we transmit value from one person to another. Just like right now, I'm transmitting a message to you through the internet and my voice. I can send you value in the form of a transaction and Complementary currencies and local currencies mean that we could maybe move back towards each community having their own dialect and kind of speaking their own language and um, having it actually be reflective of their culture. I have many, many thoughts on this. And it's such it, it's it's like opening up a can of worms, honestly, because there's there's so much there's so many levels to this topic. So let's start with the fact like we we're in a world right now where it's very easy to live your life through multiple identities right so you talked about kernel there's a very specific identity like there's a part of you that resonates with the kernel community because it's this awesome fellowship that we've all been through um there is a part of me that resonates with my crypto web3 identity like if you were to go into my twitter you would think that i do nothing else <laughs> it kind of bothers me because it's like that's not all me um, mm -hmm. And the same is true for interest groups of any kind, right? So whereas in the past, our identity was often very much defined by what we were in physical proximity to. So our family, mm -hmm. our our religious institutions, our school, our country, you know, and, and you would branch out, but you wouldn't really branch out that much. Um, we live in a world now where those barriers, those physical barriers are just completely gone. So you can have a very, very strong part of your identity that is attached to something that has no physical presence. Now, given that context and given what we're seeing with the evolution of money and tokens and tokens being tied to identity, right? A lot of NFT communities, for example, are premised on this idea. You basically open up the possibility for having different types of money for those different identities. So usually we would say different types of money for different use cases. And this makes sense to a lot of people, right? Okay, money, mm. unit of account, store of value, maybe even tool for speculation. You know, those definitions can expand and contract depending on how broad you want to be. But I think that 
we may we may get to a point where like we add in a definition that is related to identity right so why am i using this currency as opposed to this one oh it's because mm-hmm. this currency gives me access to these things with this specific group of people who identify with based on on these uh, factors and that is both interesting and scary <laughs> and confusing mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. It also then entrenches the lines that we see between different identities. And there is a fantastic Medium article that I'm going to share with you after this that kind of does a lot of this extrapolation of like what could the world be where uh, the the super naive example they gave was like a church bucks versus narco bucks. So it's like (laughs) if I'm part of the church, like this is my church money, this is what I use. Um, But, you know, if I'm part of the drug the drug ring. This is the money yeah. that I use for that. There's like a very, there's a very clear separation. You can understand what that is. Um, mm. But you know, like what happens where oh, you can't, you can't interact or transact with this community if you don't have this money, right? Right. right. We already right. see this with like gated communities and NFTs and like investing circles and that kind of thing. Um, whether that's something that would ever happen to the scale of it being. Uh, and being a deterrent, like day-to-day transactions, I think mm. that is yet to be seen. But I do mm. think that it, it's it's just so much easier now, right? It's because mm. because money is this language. It's right. It's this extra mm. tool that we have in shaping our identities and our group, mm. sort of like the, the group affiliations that we have, right? So if you think about it, like when a group of people get together and they decide that there's something that brings them together, there's there's obviously the, the juice, the, the vibe that brought them all together in the first place. There might be a name that they attach to that. There might be an organization that they have with that. In crypto, mm-hmm. they might become a DAO. If they're a DAO, mm-hmm. they might launch their own token, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you get these increasing, these levels of, it's like internally there are levels of unification, externally there could be levels of separation between this entity and this one um so that's kind of just like the high level thought that i have on that so i i think there's one thing i just want to pull on because i'm trying to wrap my random mind around this myself and make sense because i don't have a finance and economics background but i'm starting to connect that i am a consumer of money right like me holding money in my bank account is a demand source for that money. And it's part of what gives that money value. And I don't, I don't really like think about what I'm sort of tacitly endorsing by holding US dollars in my bank account. And I think one thing that really sort of hit this home for me was, was Rune's post from a couple of months ago on the case for clean money, where he lays out this idea of essentially using MakerDAO to create pro-future, pro-environmental change by backing DAI with planet-positive collateral. And that the the collateral for the money, what gives your money value is investments in wind farms and right carbon credits. And, and I think, I guess, could you maybe help me understand a little bit, like, how to think about like what gives because it is a language in that like we speak but i also kind of hold it so it's not necessarily purely just words passing back and forth right no i i love that question and this is something that i've been thinking about so much recently just around 
the the metadata that we attach to the the assets that we hold right mm-hmm. so it's it's like right now we don't actually attach a lot of metadata to them besides mm-hmm. just their price right um but if you want to talk about a token whose reserve or whose the collateral on that token is uh, an investment in carbon credits or an investment in regenerative practices for the environment, the metadata on that token and the, the value, not just the perceived value, but the fundamental value does need to shift to reflect that. Um, and it, and I actually think that this ties in really well with the, with the case of community currency that we were talking about earlier, because you could almost see it. So in the case of the community currencies, um, I'm going to backtrack here a little bit. If you go into a community and you say, we're going to launch a community currency and we're going to launch it as a form of UBI, right? Universal basic income. What you're essentially doing is taking however much reserve you have, let's say it's a million dollars, you're airdropping it into that community. That million dollars that you're giving to all those people is essentially, you could see it as an option, right? An option, like a financial option in the sense of you using that community currency means that you're betting on the probability that that million dollars is going to generate more economic value right because it's going to it's going to exchange hands multiple times it might it might help businesses develop and like at a, at a macro level the value of that economy is probably going to increase beyond just the million dollar number and i think that the same is true for the kinds of tokens that we hold here um i think that what we're essentially doing when we hold certain tokens is, yes, we're using them for these day-to-day functions that are specific to us, but it is also a statement about the belief of that token, the belief that it's going to be functional and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to disappear mm-hmm. tomorrow and, and places are going to accept it. And maybe that this token is going to play a really pivotal role in in, in financing, you know, regenerative practices that we really need because of the environmental situation that we're in. Um, and so that that's just one example. And I say that I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm really, really interested in how we bring that question and that conversation into the consumer's mind when you're holding these tokens, right? I think we've already seen that shift. I think people have already started to think about the fact like, oh, why do I hold US dollars versus USDC? I can do a lot more in USDC. Um, Mm -hmm. At least as an individual, it's like people are starting to have these internal conversations with themselves. An internal conversation I had with myself last year was looking at the contents of my portfolio and thinking, I know what all these tokens mean. I'm really familiar with the space, but I personally don't feel like I have enough metadata. Like this is just Mm -hmm. me, but... For me, it's really important that I understand, like, who's behind a project, right? I, I want to know who's on the leadership team. I would also mm-hmm. like to know how diverse that team is. I would like yeah. to know something about the sustainability of the token. Like, mm-hmm. there, are all, there are all these pieces of information that I think we aren't used to being attached to money. We're used to using money in a very transactional sort of way. And... Given that money is now sort of evolving into all these different things, kind of like this Rubik's Cube, like it can be anything, it can be any combination of things. I think that that is a that is a question that we're going to be seeing more people asking themselves. And also just like I really hope that we see more tokens and asset classes really addressing this thing. And just kind of playing on that, I think this idea that money reflects belief and it's a a creation in effect we create 
a belief system. They're just a bunch of ideas or constructs. And we choose to believe in something, whether we want to or not. And leaning into what you said around diversity and inclusion and who's at the table, I found it fascinating when I first jumped into a Discord server before a launch of an asset. It was my first DeFi experience. I you know, wrote like, how come it's just all dudes? Like, what is going mm-hmm. on here? Like, wh- what is happening? And what is the impact of a currency and a community that is very disproportionately representing one particular type of energy, a very mm-hmm. masculine, you know, mm-hmm. um, quite intense, somewhat hyper-analytical energy, right? And mm-hmm. what would happen if there was a more evenly distributed representation of this dynamic between masculine and feminine energy. And like, Mm. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, Rebecca, about a, what are the barriers that are preventing a more equitable and, you know, diverse representation in the crypto communities, but B, what will happen when that tide shifts and the people at the table are actually representative of the people on earth? Yeah, I love that. I think it really starts with understanding the role of storytelling and narrative. And I think like, people really underestimate how much the crypto narrative is still malleable, but also how much of it has been influenced by the people that are within it, right? So we talk about the bros. Yes, it's a very male-dominated space. And that is changing, um, which has been really, really nice to see. Uh, But I think it's like from within from within crypto and Web3, we focus so much on the narrative of the financialization of things that that has alienated many people. And I think we've done ourselves a disservice. I really, I almost see it as this really painful branding problem of mm-hmm. we have this super cool technology that can do all these amazing things. I mean, you know, I've... I've interviewed a hairdresser in Kenya who was able to expand her business because she was using this crypto coin. Like, that's Mm. a really cool story to tell. Um, But the stories we tell are the ones about dog coins and and really weird-looking NFTs that, you know, are these exclusive in-groups and things like that. And it's like, I get it. Um, The market is always driven by psychology and blah, blah, blah. But I just think that, if we really, if, if people within the industry really, really care about the so-called mass adoption, there needs to be something that changes in how we go to market with this stuff. And it's it's not rocket science, right? If you want people to use a token or a currency, if you really have faith that this is going to be the future of the world and the future of the financial system, make sure that the people telling that story and the people building the thing represent the people you want to go after. And the reality is that the majority of the world is not white. It's not <laughs> you a know, tech bro. It does not, <laughs> it's not a tech bro, right? Yeah, yeah like yeah. we don't even have to talk about the color of your skin. It just is not a tech bro. Um, right. Thank you for pointing that out because there actually yeah. is a lot of nuance, right? And It's not yeah. as, as simple as race or gender. It's A lot mm. of it is also background and worldview and mm. things like this. And... Mm. Um, yeah, wow. I and and I, I've seen this in many community currency projects as well, or projects that are trying to do work in you know so-called emerging markets and that kind of thing. Um, they scratch their heads like, why isn't this working? And it's like, well, maybe it would help if you had local people on the thing that you're doing, driving that project, right? It's like there's so much knowledge, there's so much value, there's so there's so much contribution that comes when you are open to have to just 
having a diversity of opinions and perspectives. And I and I always like to um, keep this in mind because, you know, it's obviously this is a topic that I care deeply about. It's like I'm a woman of color in the space. I'm an, I'm an African woman in the space. I'm usually going to be the minority in places. But I also appreciate that, you know, if you if you didn't grow up with my worldview, or if you if you did grow up uh, or you do work in an environment that's predominantly male and white, maybe these are not topics that you're used to having, right? So maybe it's not as intuitive to you. So when I talk about diversity, it's not just like, oh, it looks nice because you look like you're doing good. It's like, no, this is actually necessary for you to be yeah. successful at what you're doing. Like it is necessary that you expand your community. It is necessary that you question the narrative that you are perpetuating about what you do. And that is, that's going to be the deciding factor for how successful you are in five to 10 years from now. And and it's fundamentally necessary for crypto to do the job it's intended to do, right? Yeah. If crypto just maintains yeah. a really high adoption of a bunch, bunch of tech bros, it doesn't fulfill its purpose, right? And so mm-hmm. I think that's the clearest exactly. response to that question is, you know, what is this for and who is this for? Are we designing money for mm-hmm. everybody? Are we creating a new system of value exchange for the earth? If so, then we need to have the right people at the table to make these decisions mm-hmm. and to communicate this story. Yeah. And uh, I love the way you framed that. And I think uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the role that investors play in all of this, right? Because the investor paradigm changes how these communities are created. It changes how they look at creating value, capturing value, returning value. Mm. Like, what are your thoughts in this space? We've obviously had a chance to read some of your writings and have a glimpse, but I'm curious to hear how you approach it in this particular context. Well, I think just to tie it in with what we were just discussing, I do think that who your investors are also matters. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's not difficult to see how if you have investors concentrated within a specific worldview or demographic, that's obviously going to influence where the money goes. And this is where I think it's actually even more dangerous because where the money goes really does determine what gets built for who and at what pace. You know, and we wonder why uh, it's still so difficult to have crypto on ramps in Africa. Right? We wonder why it's not as widespread. And it's like, there just isn't nearly enough support and investment and money and capacity that's flowing there. Um, and, and you know, from a financial perspective, there's just huge, huge, huge untapped opportunity because of whatever biases that people have. Um, and I think what's also really interesting like to, to speak to crypto and DeFi specifically is we've seen a lot of investment going into projects and protocols that, again, are still very much on that financial layer. And, you know, I don't want to say this disingenuously. I think like there are some really interesting projects that are being built. I think that people are being very experimentative, very ambitious with what they're doing, and that deserves to be funded and supported. I also think that we just we need to broaden the perspective of why are we doing what we're doing? Like, what are the kinds of projects that we want to fund if we are going to be living in a world that's tokenized? And, you know, you know, really think big of like, okay, if everyone did have a wallet, like what would be some of the the issues that arise from that? What would be some of the needs of people? Right. So maybe instead of putting money into yet another protocol that's doing yet another strange, you know, ohm fork or whatever it is. It's like, maybe let's put some money into, you know, like 
changing the kinds of uh, financial opportunities that are available to people or the onboarding experience for people who didn't, uh, you know, were not exposed to this like tech, crypto, Silicon Valley type of thinking, like don't have those same pipelines. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think from on the role of investors, I just uh, one last thing I'd say here is I also do think it's really interesting that we've seen in the last couple of years of investors sort of taking on that role of shaping the industry. Like if you look at A16Z and just the amount of content that they're putting out, right? The, they, they're writing policy proposals and reports now, and it's like they're becoming the dominant, the, the thought leader in all of this. Um, and that's a lot of responsibility to take on. And I just really hope that we, we see some of that diversity elevating at that level, which I think is an effort that I've seen. And I'm just curious to see how it unfolds. Totally. Yeah, I think you've eliminated something fascinating here. And I'd actually love to speak with somebody from A16Z on that dimension, because I think you've pinpointed a, a really influential actor. Obviously, they've you know raised some pretty significant crypto funds and are very active in the space. And I think what comes to mind is your shaping this narrative is a sort of prophecy that Sepp Komvar actually communicated to me in the context of exploring how we could create lots of other refi ventures that fill gaps in its ecosystem. And it's this idea that there's these kind of two different human archetypes. We have this sort of eagle and this condor. And in like the 1490s, this eagle archetype, which is very kind of male energy, hyper-analytical, industrial, um, you know, scientific reductionist sort of dominates the human story and basically drives the condor people to the brink of extinction. And the condor people are deeply rooted in the land, this cultural identity that is directly tethered to a sense of place and the ecology of the lived environment. And suddenly there's this tide that begins to shift in the prophecy around like the 1990s about the condor people kind of beginning to re-elevate themselves on this stage and they're being this journey and this tension to find a homeostasis between these two archetypes. And as we're talking about all of this, I think sometimes it's easy for people to be um, put off by some of these you know, delineations of race, of gender, all these other um, dividing lines. But I think a lot of us can really relate to this story. And I'm curious to hear what you think, Rebecca, about the role that indigenous land stewards in particular play in healing the earth, in creating communities of care. And in helping to restore balance on our planet because it's out of whack. Yeah, I mean, I I just think of the contrast between. So I I I'm usually based in the Bay Area, um, and the Bay Area is a place where there is such a strong community that is whose purpose is we are here to protect the land. We're here to protect the cultural practices that we have. We're here to protect what little is left. You know, that Silicon Valley and, and, and the tech uh, builders and creators have not already taken away. Um, and it's something that is very real. And I, I really like that you you talked about being rooted to the land. That physicality, I think, is an aspect that we cannot ignore. Right. So let's even take this. We, we're, we can shift the conversation away from crypto and everything that's happening there. But I think that there has just been this realization of it doesn't matter how cool these things are that we're building. There is a reality that climate change is happening. There is a reality that there are groups of people who have just been completely left behind. Um, 
And there is this amazing, beautiful reality of there are people who see this, who are a part of this and have really taken up that challenge of protecting what is there. Um, and I mean, I, I've been very, very blessed to be able to meet some of these people who just dedicate their entire lives to ecological regeneration, um, to thinking about how that ties in with financial systems, right? How do we how do we bring that balance between these two seemingly different worlds? Um, but I like something that you said earlier about there will be gaps, right? And I think that there are two ways that you can see that statement. It's like, there will be gaps and that might be horrible because it means that we aren't seeing as much value placed on this work that is so important. But also when there are gaps, there are opportunities to be filled. And I think like even the fact that we're having this conversation, I think the fact that mm. refi is a thing, <laughs> you know, there's yeah. DeFi and there's refi. I love that. Um, I think that that's, that's mm -hmm. where we're going to be channeling a lot of, 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 the, the time and the care and the input. And I also think that, like, you know, it's sometimes I think we, we have this expectation and this is actually a symptom of the dynamic that we, we live in. We just talked about VCs and where investment is going. We kind of lament some of the more harmful trajectories that we see, right? We, we lament the fact that the environment is being destroyed. We lament the fact that we're not seeing funding going to certain groups of people. I also think it's okay that maybe those solutions are not going to come from those places and they were never meant to and we shouldn't even expect them to, right? Like mm. that's why those gaps are there because sometimes there are gaps that can only be filled by people who maybe do see the world in a way that is more rooted and maybe do, you know, have more of that condor perspective mm. that you talked about. And I think the question then becomes how do we elevate those voices Um and, and it's not this like binary, you know, one needs to be more elevated than the other. It's more like, yeah, how do we find that homeostasis? Mm. On this idea of gaps, I mean, I think about this a lot that the, as my understanding of the Web3 movement has, I mean, okay, it's not mature, but it is a little more mature than it used to be. Um, I've started to recognize that like crypto is going to really take hold first in addressing kind of swathes of society that are left out of the existing financial system. And the most like kind of the project that actually put this together to, with, for me and is a really huge inspiration for me is this is called Ibiza Network, I-B-I-S-A. And they are like a pioneering spatial finance application. They provide risk coverage for smallholder farmers in developing countries uh, using crypto rails and have like a network of people analyzing satellite imagery and making assessments about the health of the crops. And then every month they say, okay, your crops are less healthy than they are on average. So we're going to transfer you a little bit of money. You have kind of income security, taking a very grassroots approach to building this out. Um, I, I think though, like the, 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 the question I want to pull out here around gaps is our definition of regeneration, right? Like the first thing we think about is the environment and the climate, but I think that's very limited, right? I think I, I argue that the concept of profit is regeneration, right? <laughs> like regeneration just means you put in more than you took out. <laughs> so I'm regenerating my bank account by making a profit, but that's only on one dimension. 
And we need to be thinking about regeneration as this multipolar or multidimensional endeavor, right? It's holistic. And I think it really comes down to what matters to us and how can we collectively make sense of what matters and not be prescribed um, an idea of what matters and how we assess or measure what matters from a much smaller group of people. And I think, which, and, and the reason for that, that there's nothing to do with the intentions of that group of people, but it's just because we need all the voices at the table so that we have a comprehensive view of what matters. So I think I'd love to get your thoughts on how we can collectively assess what matters and make sense of what matters and um, kind of what dimensions do we measure and value. This is tapping you from your economist's perspective, from your data scientist's perspective, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the questions that keep me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do think a, a really big aspect of this, we did touch on this, is just having the data available, right? It's mm -hmm. very difficult to validate demand for something if people don't even have the ability to signal that demand, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that traditionally what's, you know, let's go back to money is a language. Money is a communication tool. It's a piece of information. What's been really difficult about how our economy has worked right now in terms of it being a language is that the language or the, the information about the harm that might be done, right, in a certain supply chain or in generating amount of wealth mm -hmm. is not mm -hmm. contained in that piece of information. Um, you know, a $10 bill or a $100 bill doesn't tell you how that thing got to you, or how it was made or how it was printed. Crypto gives us the ability to do that, right? We can attach as much metadata as we want, right? If you're looking at the context of NFTs, for example. Um, and so once you make that data available to people and people are like, oh, okay, you know, this, um, this token that I'm investing in uh, represents ABC, right? The collateral is supporting this project that's, you know, funding farmers in this country or mm -hmm. or it, this token is terrible for the environment and, you know, that it's run by Anons on Discord. It's like that kind of information is, is, is necessary for people to signal that demand. And I think that is right now for me is like the, the biggest gap that we have. And I, I I'm absolutely confident that it's going to be filled because it's just a data challenge. Um, mm. But then I also think like, you know, when it comes to what it is that we value, um, I also think that this is where having really deep, meaningful conversations about that is important. And it sounds, it may sound simplistic, but I, you know, let's, let's talk about kernel, right? Um, mm. The, why do people value that experience so much, right? It's this fellowship for people who are working in Web3 who are interested in asking some of those deeper questions, right? And some of those deeper questions we ask are around trust, are around what does a gift economy mean and look like in the context of what we're building? How do we maintain the sacredness of human relationship when everything seems so transactional? Like those kinds of spaces allow people to process this internally. And I think what's what can be quite difficult sometimes in the space that we work in is that, as you said, things are happening so fast. There's just this bias towards constant action that we don't take the time to pause and really, really reflect about what it is that we're doing. So 
that's not much of an answer or a solution, but I do think it's a process that is in itself valuable <laughs> for us to figure out what's valuable. But we have to be open to it and we have to be open yeah. to that process slowing down everything else that we do. Just one thing comes to mind. This, I've been trying to think about what is special about people. <laughs> and um, Andy from Colonel, he says, humans are moral creatures that can learn. And one thing I think that's very unique to humans and probably less developed, but developed to some extent in some kind of other sentient creatures is this idea of intent, right? Like we can be deliberate about the effects that our actions will have on the world and kind of take action, extrapolating out essentially like what we intend to happen. And I, I almost see it as like, it's a subset of complex adaptive systems, right? I've been working on this idea of complex intentional systems where we are the variable in climate change that can make a difference. We can change our behavior and kind of collectively shape the way that this whole system moves and stabilize the climate, draw down atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases, steer humanity so that it exists within the planetary boundaries, distribute resources so that everybody can live a flourishing life. And um, I think to me, the essence or the key of what you're saying is we have to conceive of something. We have to comprehend it and understand it and sort of sit with it in order to embed it or integrate it into our intentions. And the way that we best do that is by having these kinds of deep conversations with each other. So yes, in a word, yes. yes. I'd love to, <laughs> to get your thoughts on a piece of writing you wrote where um, touching on this concept of the gift. So obviously one of these very topical um, points in the kernel journey you say, perhaps the real purpose of gift relationships is that they bring to consciousness the realization of interdependence. Can you unpack that for me? Yeah, <laughs> I wish I could unpack the whole book. I'll just, I'll just say this. The Gift is probably the number one book that I recommend to people. And it, it completely shifted my relationship with what I do and the way that I think about money and relationships and economics and <laughs> pretty much everything. Um, but I love it because gifting is actually gifting is at the core of, of all human relationships. It's also you could even argue that it's at the core of transactions, right? The concept of a debt, mm. right? I owe mm -hmm. you something. You've done something for me. Um, there is a relationship that is created there when I give you something as a gift, right? I I'm not allowed to expect anything in return. Otherwise, it's not a gift. Um, but I've created something between us that exists that didn't exist before. And this is that thing of interdependence. Um, and I mean, Lewis Hyde, the, the author of The Gift, goes into all of these examples through different cultures and different times of how gifting has really been at the core of maintaining that balance between people and planet, right? So if we if we are taken from the environment, that is a gift to us. Um, and if we do not honor that gift, things start to get out of balance, as we're seeing right now. The same is true for human relationships. Um, but I think what's also just really important is realizing that that interdependence 
or, or even you could say that that obligation when people talk about debt, we often talk about it in very negative terms. It's like, no, actually, that interdependence is what we need. That interdependence is is the gift, right? That's the thing that sustains us, that we need that. Otherwise, we don't survive because we're mm. not, we can't do things in isolation. We can't just take, 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 take. We have to give back. It's, 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 it's the underlying structure of physical, natural relationships in the world. Um, and so that's how I interpret that line. But really, that book, <laughs> just, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's beautifully written and it also just, it also touches on creativity as this thing that is shared between people. Um, and I think this is something that we experience a lot in crypto. It's like we're all kind of, we're all thinking about the future. We're all thinking about how do we do what we're doing. And we have conversations like this and we get to transmit some of that creative power and impetus and juice and whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, mm. that's, that's, that's what I think about gifting and inter interdependence. Thank you so much. It's it's so it, it's so applicable on so many levels, and it's it's a bit of a challenge to my ego because I've identified with this idea of being like, oh, I, I want to be self sufficient and self reliant and independent and go into the wilderness and sail across oceans, and <laughs> and I I just it I, I'm realizing that interdependent i mean well in web3 very literally interdependence is your competitive advantage because of the composability of things right if you build something over here that sits on its own it's going to be much less effective than if it has bridges and bindings and other kind of DeFi protocols in connecting to it um and i i think there's lessons to be taken from that to just us right like we find our meaning and we find our our value and honestly I, I mean i mean like we survive and especially thrive because of the relationships with you have with each other and this sort of crazy phenomenon that just by being around amazing people i just feel a bit more amazing like right now and um so yeah i think there's so many lessons to take there and this this idea of interdependence i think is one that we we probably should get the meme squads on, right? Like, yes. let's kind of get, oh, get this, get <laughs> this spinning. This is, you know, this is one of the things that really does excite me the most about Web3. I mean, all the concerns aside and the pro culture and whatever, at the end of the day, we are also seeing a cultural shift in how people work with each other and how mm. people value that interdependence mm. and that collaboration, right? It is your competitive advantage. And, mm. I, and I speak for anyone else who's been in the space or has been adjacent to it it ripples over into other aspects of your life. I've also had that similar internal shift of, wow, actually, like, life is a lot easier when I do it with other people. Life is a lot easier when I'm more open to sharing my ideas and I kind mm -hmm. of get over that very, that, that, that scarcity sense of thinking of, like, it's mine and I've got to protect it and if I don't, it's going to go away. Um, that's something that really does run deep in, in terms mm. of the culture. And it's not in all places, but I think it's one that we really celebrate and it's one that just makes me really happy to be a part of. Mm. Mm. This has been such a wonderful conversation with you, Rebecca. I'm so grateful that you've carved such a large part of your day and you've shared so much of your story with us. 
I wanted to ask you if there was anything that you could have people listening do, any one specific thing to either help you on your journey or to help this Web3 movement or to move forward refi, whatever it is, what can people do who are listening to you right now? Well, other than listen to the audiobook of The Gift, <laughs> definitely do that. Um, you know, a podcast that I really enjoy and have enjoyed since I was about 15 or 16 is The On Being Project with Krista Tippett. Mm. It's, it's pretty popular. Um, it's got nothing to do with crypto. That's the best part. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I just, I love the conversations that she has with all kinds of people, physicists, poets, dancers, actors, comedians. Um, and this is actually something that I, I really value in my own life. I spend so much of my time in the crypto space, ex- speaking to crypto people, uh, you know, on crypto Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really, really important to expose ourselves to other people. <laughs> yeah. Not just that, but just... Um, some of those bigger questions, right? Expose ourselves to people who are dedicating all of those, t- all of their time to asking those bigger questions and thinking about how we ask them better and how we talk about them better. Because all of that is absolutely applicable to what we're doing and it will become even more applicable. Um, and so that's just a really beautiful thing that I love to listen to, you know, when I'm cleaning my apartment or getting ready or whatever it's it's really beautiful and i definitely recommend it it's wonderful we'll have to check that out go for it john uh yeah it's one of my favorites as well um i yeah i think we are very nearly uh, to the end of our time together for now um i i'm thinking back to one of the first things you said you were talking about your upbringing and you use the phrase merging worlds and I think uh, there's this mental model that John E. and some of his friends have introduced to me, this idea of the two loops framework for thinking, which is essentially how we go about shifting from one system to a new, better system. This is, you could talk about like a paradigm shift or whatever it may be. And it's a really, really interesting way to think about like, identifying and understanding the people who are stabilizing the existing system, helping make sure they have a hand in understanding how to make this shift safely and in a dignified way. And I think, I I, I mean, I was so excited. I don't want to brag, but like I knew this conversation would be this good. And I knew it because to have you here helping guide this transition as we move from late stage capitalism to a regenerative society is it's so 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 welcome so thank you um thank you so much for your time and for being here and um i i hope i get to see you soon in denver maybe yes absolutely this has been such a pleasure and so fun and mm. I'm so glad we finally got to meet. And yes, I'll I know. be in Denver. Um, Great. This has been really lovely. Thank you so much, both of you. Last piece, where can people learn more about you? Where can people connect with you? Uh, you can connect with me on Twitter. So it's at Rebecca underscore Mcarmelo. You might have to spell that in your show notes. Um, or on my website, RebeccaMcarmelo.com.
Beautiful. Thank you, Rebecca. Hopefully we have another chance to talk to you soon and have a great venture over into Denver. Thank you. Bye. Shoot time. Thanks. <laughs>